I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Today I'm joined by my colleague Daniel Saw, a senior editor at the LRB, who has a piece in the current issue of the paper on Ian McEwan's new novel, Lessons. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Tom. So Lessons is Ian McEwan's, I think, 17th novel in a career spanning almost 50 years. He won the Booker Prize for Amsterdam in 1998. Atonement, I think, sold something like 2 million copies and was made into a, a movie that may or may not have won any Oscars, but it, it may as well have done if it didn't. So he's one of the, he's a, he, he appears on lists of you know, the most powerful people in British culture and he's a CBE and he's a, what could be described as, as a towering figure in, in English letters if you were writing that kind of profile about him. We're not. This isn't that kind of discussion. So, Daniel, how? Why has this happened? <laughs> Before we mention lessons, I, I think I think it's a it's a good place to begin because you you start to wonder why uh, um, the LRB, as you say, the seventeenth novel. I think this is the thirteenth or fourteenth time the LRB has reviewed Ian McEwan. The 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 one that wasn't reviewed was the one he won the Booker Prize for merely because he published two in quick succession uh, is my suspicion. The other thing that I don't know about to you growing up, but certainly I, as a teenager, we read The Child in Time in English at school. And he was this, you know, he was one of those figures like Martin Amis, Kazuo Ishiguro, Graham Swift, Julian Barnes. These, the, the idea of, you know, well, as a as a middle class English boy who was interested in books, they seemed like the writers that one had to pay attention to in the in the late eighties and early nineties. I mean, the, the question of why or how Ian McEwan demands so much of our attention, why certain books demand so much of our time and attention, is a good one that maybe we can come back to later after we've discussed this new book. So, uh, who who is lessons about? Uh, it's this guy called Roland Baines who lives an ordinary middle-class sort of life and through most of the course of the second half of the 20th century. At the book's close, he's in his early 70s and he's been through various sort of London scenes. He's tried to be a poet. He's taught tennis. He ends up as a lounge bar pianist because he's he knows his piano but at each stage, he hasn't quite reached the heights he would have liked to. There's a way in which you could see him really as a less successful version of Ian McCune himself. But what the novel tries to do is to reflect the kind of influence that world events might have had on a guy like this. And the big events appear again and again in the novel. There's the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Suez Crisis, Chernobyl. 
So as he ages, and we get this sort of steady progress through his life, we also get the way that these events register on his consciousness and his way of behaving. And are they just ways of marking time for the reader to say, here, you know, he's getting older and these are the things that happened in history that we all know happened as a way of just sort of markers so we can keep track of where we are in history and where we are in his life? Or do they have... I mean, is there some sense in which these events sort of affect him as a character? I think part of it goes beyond what you would expect for a novel when you're just thinking about character and what led him here and the sort of things that are fundamental to narrative and fundamental to movies, etc. thinking about backstory and cause and effect. I think what a novel like this is trying to do is to make a bigger statement about how you should be looking at X event, which isn't to say that it's trying to pronounce that we should rethink the Cuban Missile Crisis, because these things are a little bit like potted summaries, but they're, they're sort of useful or potentially useful for somebody who might happen to be, we're thinking again about somebody who's an elderly statesman of the English novel, who has a wide readership and might be picked up by, you know, an American high school student who wasn't around at the time, who might, he thinks, appreciate a little lesson in what Suez was like and what it meant for people. So this so the title of the novel that's called Lessons, which one imagines or hopes is a richly ironic title actually is actually it does have this straightforward didactic purpose here's a little history lesson as if it were a part of a gove a michael gove like curriculum that you know history lessons don't have enough facts so here comes in McEwen to the rescue yeah i think that would be true if there were something less expected or less standard about the the way these things are explained and and they're perfectly reasonable presentations of what went on and what we usually think about X and Y. But there's a point which, because Roland, we go through his whole life and we have Roland at age 11, 12, 13, 14, he never quite gets to take his O-levels because of subsequent events. But if he were, as a schoolboy, presented with these little summaries of of, of, of great events, you'd think that probably get him through his exams. And they're at sort of that level. So as well as these world historical events that mark mark time in the novel and may or may not have these effects on on Roland's life, there are also, well, several, but two in particular, these two key turning points, these two private events in his life, which have a profound effect on him. That's right. One is that in his early years at boarding school, between the ages of 11 and 14, he has an encounter with his piano teacher, a certain Miss Cornell, who, to start with, the moment he misses a note, pinches him on the leg. And this is a sort of electrifying moment from him. And from that moment, all sorts of things ensue. Eventually, there's a relationship. Viewed from the outside, the relationship with the piano teacher is clearly abusive. But Roland, and this is psychologically entirely plausible doesn't see it that way or doesn't see it entirely that way because because he can't but it is clearly a, d- a defining episode 
in his life. That's right. There are hints that this is something he's going to have to address and revisit and work through. But for a long time in the novel, this is the relationship is gradually reimagined and re-explained and the details gone into. But with this sense, as you say, of fondness, of something he can't get out of his head, feels that it's dictated the course of his life and books called lessons there are there are things he's he's learned and ways that he can only behave because of these things that have happened to him and obviously this is the the big one the traumatic formational episode but what's curious about it is that he doesn't feel sorry for himself enough doesn't in that sense understand himself as as a victim to the extent that he wants to question what it was exactly that he went through for him, looking back on the child he was, he sees the adventure part of it and sees it as a consensual relationship. But but the fact that he sees it like that, which it, it I mean, the, the power imbalances of, of age and of the teacher and the pupil, that's clearly, you know, consent's not possible there. But he, but he has to see it like that because, I mean, it sounds as if a, a, a plausible, all too plausible account of a... An, an abuse victim's experience. That's right. But I think what you'd expect the novel to do is to, leaving aside the effect it would have on a child, is somehow to address the questions that you're asking about it, that we'd all ask about it. And I think, oddly, it's something the book sidesteps. It's it's left there we're told the effects it has on Roland as he grows up. We're told why he's had the relationships with women he's he's had. But there isn't this, you know, a whole book could be written and many, many have been about the effects of abuse at that age. But they're really tangential to everything that happens here. There's a curious avoidance of the subject there's something missing in the novel. So these two, I mean, we're calling them moments, but they're sort of more than moments. So these, these events, the two key traumatic events or private turning points in his life, that one of them is the, what happens with the piano teacher or what his piano teacher does to him. And, and the second one involves his wife? The second one involves his wife, who we don't get to know very well, but there's an extraordinary episode which totally derails him, which is that they've just had a new baby, a little boy. He's still feeding from his bottle. And then one day, Roland gets up, gets the baby out of the cot and finds that the wife is gone. Alyssa has disappeared. She's left a note saying, effectively, don't look for me. And he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where she's gone. He's on his own, and he's on his own, really, for the rest of his life. The police arrive to try and trace her. They suspect him of her murder, and he has to clear his name. He gradually gets various reports from her that she's maybe moved to the continent and going from one country to another. But what we eventually find out is that she has had ambitions. She's determined to be Europe's greatest novelist, 
And that's exactly what she set out to do. And he discovers as she wins prize after prize and publishes extraordinary novel after extraordinary novel, that he has become the male Hardwick. And that's sort of comparing himself to Elizabeth Hardwick. And and Robert Lowell, that's right. But the idea, but now, I mean, in many ways, Elizabeth Hardwick's reputation now is perhaps even sort of higher than Lowell's. I mean, there's a sense, I mean, is there some... Imp- is there some idea that he thinks of himself that really he's the better writer who was he was less famous, but maybe in time he'll come to be seen as the... Well, he always wanted to be this great poet and he tries and he accepts that he hasn't quite made it and then he starts writing, stealing really, poems for a greeting card company. But he thinks he could have got there and he gets published in little journals and all this sort of thing. And of course there's failed ambition but but yeah, he wants to stand up for himself too. And eventually, like the rest of the world, he looks at her novels and thinks about them and works as a sort of critic. And in his spare time, he you know has a gig writing reviews for places like Time Out and stuff. So he you know knows knows how to read. He's self educated, having left school early, and he gives us a kind of considered assessment of of her books and thinks against himself that unfortunately they are completely brilliant but there's no twist at the end that lessons turns out to be written by Alyssa and it's actually the ex-wife's novel based on her husband's life sort of atonement style twist there isn't that twist although even saying that is giving away a (laughs) non-twist um does Lessons, I wonder if it only really makes sense as a novel in the context of the books that have gone before it, sort of at this stage in Ian McEwan's career. I'll just put that another way. How much does it matter that this novel is by Ian McEwan and everything we know about that? Because if it were really, as it were, what it pretends to be, written by Roland Baines, would anyone read it? Would anyone have published it? One thing that's clear in the Ian McEwan career is that, to do him credit, you think that he might be occasionally asking himself versions of that question too there are a lot of writer figures in the books in atonement there was bryony in sweet tooth there's a novelist called tom haley here there's roland baines's wife Alyssa. and the question of roland's mediocrity is seems interesting to me because there's a question of success and failure and very simplistically, what makes a great writer? It's not really the sort of question you want to have asked, but you think this might be turning around in the, the character's mind. And there's a there's a moment here when Roland finally discovers what Alyssa's been doing after disappearing back to her native Germany to become this great novelist. They're not in contact again for large part of his life, but he gets to read the novel's and there are fantastic characterizations of them. Can I just find the bit to read? So here he is um, reading Alyssa for the first time after she's about to win every European prize going. He could feel it line by line. Everything he'd thought and felt was coming apart. The prose was beautiful, crisp, artful. The tone from the first lines had authority and intelligence. The eye was exact, unforgiving, compassionate. In some of the starkest scenes, there was a near-comic sense of both human inadequacy and courage. 
There were paragraphs that rose from Catherine's limited perspective, etc., etc., etc. It's the most praising review of an imaginary book you could possibly imagine. And then he says, uh, was a world once evoked by Elizabeth Bowen on the one hand, and if there was a guiding influence, a hidden spirit in the folds of the prose, it was Nabokov. There's no imagine, no no better book could be imagined. And that's clearly, a, I mean, there's a joke there, isn't there? I mean, that's the thing that, I mean, it, we've sort of been taking, perhaps taking, talking about him quite seriously or t- uh, su- suggesting he takes himself very seriously. And maybe he doesn't always take himself as seriously as, I mean, he's because he can be very funny. And even in the books, which are, which are clearly not comedies, but there's a sort of a farcical element. I mean, the bits in The Innocent where he's, wandering around Berlin with a chopped up body in a suitcase trying to dispose of it and obviously that's horror and nightmarish but it is also sort of farcical and the ways in which farce and horror sort of overlap and can be hard to distinguish from each other and that you know he's Ian McEwan has had a lot of book reviews in his time so that sort of mockery of a of a lesser intelligence trying to describe a novel that he couldn't have written himself maybe we should credit him with more of a sense of humour in this book than we have done. I think that might be fair. Look, looking at it like that, you wonder what all the, the other stuff is there for. The, 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 this is a vast book, and, and I think it has to be his, his longest. The, the, the comments on the world, the everyday happenings, poor Roland Baines, enjoying tidying up his house, etc. You live for those other moments and you can see why McEwen does too. Uh, remembering something that the, the philosopher Galen Strawson, who's a, a friend of McEwen's, who told The New Yorker a few years ago, or maybe more than a decade ago now, that Ian is essentially a short story writer, he said, that none of his longer books has the unity of drive that the best novels have. And is that fair, do you think? I mean, I, you can certainly see that his... You know, some of his earlier, much these much shorter novels, that some of them could almost be sort of very long short stories. Is that assessment fair, and is is it a problem for this book? I think that's right. Some his most striking things really are short story form, and his very early earliest pieces of writing in the back in the seventies, really shocking stories with very brutal twists. The first book called First Love, Last Rites almost probably couldn't be published now. Amazingly striking, I think, for people at the time because terrible things happen. A man pushes a nine-year-old girl into a river. They're, uh, they're really, really nasty and, and dark and amazingly, horrifyingly effective. And it seems to me, I think it's a little bit probably unfair to think that there are these two incompatible forms that one's either a a novel writer or a or can uses the, you know, the perfect miniature form but there are obviously techniques that he learned from those things that have been useful in the novels or almost that he hasn't been able to avoid repeating because it's a very effective trick it's a tool to be able to disrupt suddenly accelerate for something shocking unanticipated to happen in a novel and I think it's a perfectly legitimate technique, really. It's what the movies are all about. It's a bit like there's a sudden, you know, acceleration of the music and you know that something's going to happen. And 
there's a sort of few revealing moments in the book where we've seen how sort of so many things are kind of psychologically motivated that his life, the way he thinks about things is determined by these large traumas that would affect anyone. But some of them come out of the blue in a, as a way in, in order to accelerate the action, um, but are very in McCune-like because you see these things again and again in in the novels with stalkers and enduring love. There's always these rapid moments where something escalates. But one illustrative one here is um, when he's there with, he goes to a Dylan concert at some point. This is one of the ways of registering the excitements in the world, some of them cultural too. <laughs> that could be any time between 1960 and 2020, but anyway, yeah. Um, and it's actually, you know, it's a bad bit in Dylan. Everyone's <laughs> his gaudy turn. He goes to a concert, there's a big crowd, everyone's very excited. He comes out and then suddenly out of nowhere, the friend he's with gets attacked by someone in the crowd for no reason, which is a very in McEwen thing to happen, this sort of sudden moment of an inexplicable violence. But what's odd here is that usually those things will have their resonance, will have their effect on the, on the character and on events, and they're thought over it again and again. And the most famous thing in, in McEwen is the amazing opening scene that really nobody's ever able to forget, an enduring love where there's this balloon accident and this single accident is then looked at from all angles, revisited. It turns out that this is the way that the characters have become inextricably linked. That doesn't happen in this moment, but it suddenly works as a kind of changing of tempo, change of mood. And a paragraph later, also watching the accident is Alyssa, who becomes his wife. This is the second time they meet. So it's used as a sort of precipitating thing to change direction. And I think that that often happens. There's another incident of a similar kind, really, which has its effect on Roland. And you can see how these things will, in your imagination, filter through into everyone's consciousness. It's that where Roland is, Eleven just arrived in England, there's a sudden, he's down, going down the street with his father, and then he sees flying through the sky a helmet making an arc, which is, again, there's something always something very interesting about these moments. They're almost geometric. He, they're frozen in time, and there's a sudden, a sudden shape to them. And it turns out to be a motorcyclist who's hit a car, and there's a sudden rush of people coming in to help. And what's interesting, I think, is that usually these moments, which you get again and again in him, are dark and deranging. And what happens here is that Roland, new to England, is trying to figure out this place. All the trees are weird and the roads are clean and he doesn't understand it. He was brought up in in Libya in the heat and uh, is trying to understand England. What he sees is that everyone rushing to help this poor motorcyclist and the woman in the car who's been hit, his father brought up in the, a soldier used to helping out in the war is instantly there to help. Ambulances arrive and his revelation here is that the world is good. It's Everyone's out to help people. And it seems really oddly, and it's odd in the McEwen canon, as it were, but it somehow tells you something, I think, about this novel, which is that somewhere, despite all the 
upsetting things that can happen in the world. There's something safe and reassuring about England. And this is just a very simple way of introducing that. So other than the, I mean, other than the exigencies of plot that you, you know, you need to have things to, well, as you put in the piece, you say the narrative motor, accelerator of action. What is it that, that makes McEwen return again and again to the, these moments of maximum thrill, as you put it? That's what I want to know too. It seems to me that repeating this trick in all its various forms, you can see why as a novelist, as a technician, you found that it works, it, it's gripping, it turns what could be a you know tradition of English literary prose into something that can be much more arresting and dramatic and it has genre elements really and a bit like a detective novel or something that's going to grip you. But to repeat what really so formally is is exactly the same thing in a way feels much more like some kind of incantation, something that really you can't avoid. And this is just purely a suspicion, but it's always perplexing if somebody keeps <laughs> doing the same thing. Forget the fact he's a novelist. I too want to know why he feels the need to regenerate, revisit this same moment. And it's a bit, it's curiously a little bit like the way they function in the novels themselves. This precipitating event will be looked at throughout the novel from all its various angles. It'll be untangled, never forgotten. And it's almost as if versions of the same moment will appear novel after novel, as if there is some sort of originating intrusion and horror that can never be forgotten, that this is a writer who is obsessed with that very, very simple idea. And I want to know the answer too. There's some implied contrast in your piece between the way Ian McEwan writes about violence and the way Dostoevsky, for example, writes about violence. The difference between the way that sort of Dostoevsky goes sort of drills all the way down into into Raskolnikov's thinking. And does McEwan sort of he stops short somehow? He stops short, perhaps he does, as if he's almost afraid to think of the consequences. There's something very frustrating about this novel because if you take this sort of tradition of the the put-upon character, the person whose life hasn't gone as it should because society is against him, it's something that you see everywhere. It's it's what makes certain novels extraordinary. Hampson's Hunger, all those figures in Dostoevsky, The Underground Man, Crime and Punishment. The thing you come to expect is almost you've got this trigger as a reader. You want this person to break out to take revenge to fight back against the world and there's something that there's a way in this novel that you can't quite feel that anything like that could ever happen it's all too english really this moment that roland at age 11 thinks you know the world's there out it's going to look after you he might have his disappointments but he's going to get on with it before we continue, a quick message from the New Books Network. Listeners and readers of the London Review of Books know how difficult it is to keep up with all the latest books. The New Books Network publishes over 80 interviews a week with authors and academics about their new books, and among their hosts is the LRB contributor Owen Bennett-Jones. You can find NBN interviews at newbooksnetwork.com or by searching New Books Network in your podcast app. 
With a library of more than 15,000 interviews in over 120 subjects, New Books Network is one of the most valuable resources on the internet. Everyone, one imagines everyone, almost everyone reading this book is going to know they're reading Ian McEwan's 17th novel and he's won all these prizes and he's sold all these millions of copies and Roland Baines's life is very similar to Ian McEwan's life except Roland is a failure and McEwan is a great success. How important is that idea to the book in as it were that if it were if it were really what it pretends to be if this were the life story of Roland Baines by Roland Baines or someone like him we wouldn't be reading it. No one would. It probably wouldn't have been published because he's not being published. So there's, there's this... I suppose the question, and we should probably look to ourselves about this, is why do we give him quite so much attention? And some of it's a little bit embarrassing, you know, these thirteen pieces that have been published in the LRB, and and unfortunately, I think we can accept he's just inescapable. And once a figure like this is is discussed, you've either got to ignore it in order to make space for other people. And that's probably the better way to behave. Or you've got to kind of think about how we've got to this point, what goes on to get this person on the radio every every morning soon after his novel comes out. And but we are complicit. But there's also but people I mean it's partly about fame, it's partly about questions of celebrity, it's questions of I mean, it was just the way that the publicity for Lessons began nine months ago. You know, in January, there was a news story in The Guardian announcing that Ian McEwan's most epic work to date will be published in the autumn. And no, the kind of the publicity machine gets underway. I mean, I wonder if the, if the novel... I mean, one would hope that McEwan, maybe in the you know, early hours of the morning, asked these questions him, himself... Perhaps, and I wondered, and even if he doesn't directly, or does the novel pose that question, even unintentionally? When you say that large stretches of it are quite boring, and is there some sense in which the novel, despite itself, or even not despite itself, as I don't know, could be said to be testing the limits of our attention? So your question is how self-conscious it is. Those things are always impossible to answer. I mean, one sort of curious feature about this is a is you know, more more properly, more fairly, you'd, you know, you'd have a writer on to talk about their work and to uh, to explain what... But except I don't, in a way, I'm not really interested in what the writer thinks because it's too... I don't think you could ask this question, say, do you, do you think you should be less famous? Do you think you should be less successful? And in a way, people can either say, well, of course not, or of course I should. I think it's almost an impossible question for a writer to answer. And I think it is a question for a critic because you look at... Can you, you know, read the read the book against reading against the grain, or read it? Um... Well, clearly, one of the things he's interested in, and it's you know unfathomable to what extent this is conscious or, or not, is is the question of fame and the question of how you got to this point. So, Roland Baines's wife, Alyssa, who becomes this super successful novelist whose novels are characterized as really registering the spirit of the age in perfect Nabokovian prose. That may be how a figure like Ian McEwan is is understood by the culture at large, unthinkingly. And then there's the question of, you know, 
what would it be to be what perhaps I also feel like a sort of plodding middle of the road person and that's part of the honesty of just being being human you criticize yourself and you think wouldn't it be great if I was great and maybe I am great and everyone tells me and so I think explicitly it's exploring that question so in that sense I mean there's a sense in which McEwan's has sort of split himself and obviously they're not Neither of them is an, is, a, is an exact self-portrait of him, but here's here's just this ordinary guy who was born in 1948, and then here is this great novelist, and so he's he's is not there are sort of extreme versions of of what he is, and actually he's somewhere in the middle that you know he doesn't write Nabokovian prose, and I don't think even he would, or especially he would would claim to write Nabokovian prose. He's not Roland Baines, and he's not Delissa, but he's somewhere in the middle. He's just. I think that's right. But there's also a way in which the novel imagines what it might be like hypothetically to have a novel that lifted itself out of the ordinary entirely. And I won't even give it away by saying when this happens. There's a moment when when he starts to think about what the real novel telling the story of the times would be but it's a bit too early to say he imagines what the novel of the 21st century might be like and wishes somehow that it could be written already and it's too early but you imagine what it would be like to present yourself as the sage who could write this ideal novel so there's a there's a sort of ghost of a novel within the novel in the way that say in infinite jest david foster wallace's book there's the presentation of this perfect entity which you can't quite achieve as a writer so in 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 infinite jest it's the it's the thing known as the entertainment the the brilliant ideal little bit of video that people will watch and it totally take over their lives and they'll not want to do anything again so you argue that McEwen identifies with the victim more than the perpetrator in these violent interactions. And I wonder if you think that's consistent across his work, because I sometimes wonder if something shifted in the mid-90s, maybe. In his earlier books, the ones that earned him the nickname Ian Macabre, there's rather more doubt about whether or not the, protag- the, the protagonist is one of the good guys. And then you get to Enduring Love, which was published in '97. And you have this confident, comfortable, self-avowedly rational narrator who's convinced someone's stalking him. And I, at least reading that book, kept wondering who's really stalking who, because the, na- the narrator's kind of obsessed with the guy that he thinks is stalking him. And that was quite a pleasing ambiguity. But then at the end, it all gets resolved, and there really isn't any doubt about who's sane and who's mad and who's good and who's bad, that the, the guy who seemed to be the hero turns out, oh, actually, he is the hero. And the later novels from Enduring Love on, a lot of them seem too confident in their moral judgment somehow. As, as, as McEwen went from being this slightly weird outsider to a pillar of the literary establishment with a CBE. And you mentioned in the piece that he's just a few months older than King Charles, but in some ways he seems more like Tony Blair to me, especially in this kind of this moral certainty. Um, and perhaps at his most Blairite in Saturday, that's right. Saturday, Saturday, which is called Saturday because it's set on a single day in 2003 at the height of the Iraq war protests in, in London. And the protagonist is a, this guy called Henry Perrone, who's this 
super successful neurosurgeon who's very well off, very sure of himself. He's everything's gone his way. And there he is thinking about the events of the day as the protests unfold. But again, this is sort of interesting conjuncture of public and private, because it's a register of that heightened time in, in 2003. But the random private event happens to him. He's driving along and there's a crash. His car is hit. And a guy called Baxter, it's a road rage incident, really. You know, very ordinary daily thing. But as is inevitable in a novel by Ian McEwan, things unfold from this. And Baxter becomes this threatening figure who's going to invade. And, and very literally, that he invades his home and it's sort of a home invasion. There's this threat of violence. And then the whole thing is miraculously, and I don't think that is the wrong word because it does seem miraculous, is miraculously diffused by Perone's daughter reciting Matthew Arnold's poem, Dover Beach, which soothes the savage breast of the of the violent invader. Soothes the savage, savage breast, that's right. And Baxter and Nigel think this is a moment of amazing beauty. Think, assume that she must have written this and are just carried away by, by the moment, by art. Um, and so at the end, order is restored. This idea there is this eruption of violence into his Henry Perrone's comfortable life. And then... And order is restored. There has to be a way to get back to family life, to put the, to put the monsters back in their box. And the, I mean, the novel, he... I don't know about the novel, but Perone certainly seems to accept or propose, and I suppose it is accepting this sort of false dichotomy between war and tyranny, that these are the choices. If you're against the war, you must be for tyranny, which is more or less the way Blair presented it and Perone ac- accepts that, which obviously the, the million people protesting didn't. I mean, is there any point, do you think, any recognition that the order that has to be restored might itself constitute or, or contain or, or include a form of violence i mean not least in the form of the the iraq war that the comfortable bourgeois order even just in terms of in the terms of the novel in terms of the war that the order that we need to restore involves accepting that iraq must be invaded which is obviously a much more destructive and violent and damaging act than baxter breaking into perone's house i think the interesting thing about saturday is it was written at a moment when Ian McEwan was hardly the only person who was slightly deranged, again, like the figures in his fiction, by the course of events. And it really was, you know, there was George Bush saying, you know, with us or against us, it was the war on terror. You had to pick a side. And it became it became very simple, people seem to think, that you were on one side or another. And people who wrote books were public figures of one kind or another felt that they had to take a stand. They were moved to do it. And Ian McEwan was one of those who, in fully criticisable fashion, <laughs> pitched his tent on one side. Yeah, but you'd, you, one would hope that this ability to see both sides, this a bit, you know, I mean, one might hope that an artist, a writer... Could be more subtle about it. Could be more subtle about it. You would, but you just have to remember what it was like then. And people. yeah, but you know, the, uh, 
I mean, there is that really interesting statistic about the number of people now who claim that they were opposed to war at the time massively outnumbers the people who actually opposed it. So there are people who now believe that that they opposed it when in fact they supported it. So I think you know there there was a derangement, and that's true. Yeah, yeah, you can you can you can you can measure that in politicians. But I was crazy too. I was just crazy in a way that Ian McEwan wasn't. I I remember the the TV turned on and. I saw the first, the news had broke, somebody rang up, the first plane hit the tower. Actually, in McCune at the time, it was, it was, it was the, um, the next, when the, when the newspaper came out the following day, uh, he wrote in The Guardian to describe the moment. He talked about the plane entering the second tower, like a folding into the tower, like a posted letter or something. So he had this sort of, extraordinary moment the, that little image those images stick in his head i mean there's a thing that samir rahim wrote in the nlb a few years later that ian McEwen wrote soon after 9 11 that the hijackers did not have the imaginative capacity to empathize with others pain i samir saw almost the opposite in their frightening ability to carry out an act of suicidal revenge on behalf of people with whom they had no ties other than religion but you know he'd had more time to think about it than McEwen had he was fully crazed like everyone and like I was. And this was a moment of extremes and you know, the legacy of that has lasted and that's informed politicians. And indeed, you know, people say that they were they said something at the time and and didn't because it matters and where you stood is something that's counted. And interestingly, the way that this uh, is reflected in the new novel is that we have this sort of large sequence of of major global events and they're the they're the sort of ones that we all know about in Berlin Wall, etc. An odd missing part is is 9-11, which is sort of mentioned and you kind of know that it's happened, but unlike everything else, which probably in the sort of present imagination doesn't loom quite as large, it's sort of passed over. And I can see why if you were in McEwen having been identified with one particular stance on the whole event, you really not want to go into it again, much like a politician. He gets he gets away with it. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. And I think a deliberate one, you know, territory best left avoided. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. You can read Daniel's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Mahmoud Mamdani on leaving Uganda, Miranda Carter in Westminster Abbey, and Amir Srinivasan on Andrea Dworkin. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilborn. The music is by Kieran Brunt. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.